your brain is not just representing the patterns of sensory information in the world and in, in the body right now. It's also predicting what's going to come next. It's actually already starting to prepare what you're going to do next, what you're going to see next, what you're going to hear next, and so on. So we're really talking about milliseconds from now. And I would tell you that there's really good evidence, for example, with kids who have test anxiety, that you can completely eradicate that test anxiety by teaching them to construct different experiences out of that arousal, to make sense of those arousing um, affective feelings in a very, very different way. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are starting the new year off with a conversation with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Dr. Barrett is among the top 1% of most cited scientists in the world, primarily for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. In addition to being a scientist and a researcher, she's also dedicated to making her work and the work of others more accessible through conversations like this. Today, she's sharing some of her insights from her best-selling books, How Emotions Are Made, and The Secret Life of the Brain, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Dr. Barrett also has a popular TED Talk that has had more than 6.5 million views. I'll put the links to all of that in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 335. It's an honor to be able to talk to Dr. Barrett today about emotions, how they're made, how to understand them, and also a little bit about what she calls the body budget, which I think you're really going to enjoy. Without further ado, here's our chat. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for chatting with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. So you research emotions. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in this. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I was a graduate student. Um, I was studying something uh, else entirely, actually. and uh, But I had to measure people's emotional responses. And um, I noticed that the measures weren't performing the way that they were supposed to be performing according to what I had learned in textbooks and, you know, as an undergraduate and so on. And so um, mainly I was asking people how they feel and people were telling me, even though they were using words like angry, sad, happy, afraid, and so on, really, when you look at the data, what they were saying is they felt happy, they felt pleasant or unpleasant. And they were using um, words like, angry, sad, afraid as synonyms for I feel bad. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll just have to learn to measure emotions objectively by measuring people's facial expressions or their physiological changes. Um, 
because I had learned that there were these universal signatures, you know, for different emotional states and that they were present at birth, they were innate and so on. And so I thought it was going to be really straightforward. I thought, well, you know, it'll just take me a couple of months. I'll figure out how to do this. And then I'll kind of get back to my day job, um, which was studying um, the self and self, you know, how you, what your ideas are about yourself, self-esteem, um, your image of yourself relative to what your parents want for you, relative to your ideals for yourself, that kind of thing. Anyways, long story short, once I dug into the literature, I realized it's a myth, actually, <laughs> that, you know, um, that there are these universal expressions um, on the face and that there are these universal, um, you know, markers in the body. And that led me to retrain as a neuroscientist. And here we are, you know, 30 years later, and I still haven't really solved the problem. But that's okay, because no one's really solved the mystery of emotions. But I think I have a much better handle on it. Um, so that it, it began really with my, you know, the hubris of a young of a young scientist, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And you're a mother, right? I am a mother. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think about how hard it is to understand adult emotions. How what was that experience like? understanding emotions from a scientific perspective and then also, you know, raising a child with less predictable emotions. I wouldn't say that children have less predictable emotions, actually. Um, I think what I would say is that, um, that children, we talk about unpredictable emotions today when I was driving to work in the car, uh, this Kermit the Frog came on the radio singing Rainbow Connection. And I had to pull over because I was crying so hard listening to this <laughs> song because it reminded me of my daughter when she was a very little, little girl. And yeah. you know what? this is something no one warns you about when you're uh, having children that, you know, your, your little child will grow up to be a big person who you will adore, but you'll also really miss that little person who is lost to you. Right. And she doesn't, my daughter doesn't remember. She's now 24. She doesn't remember herself as that tiny little girl, but I adored that tiny little girl too, in a different way than I adore my big, uh, 24 year old woman daughter. But, um, so, I mean, what I would say is that emotions in general are not always, the brain doesn't always make itself aware (laughs) of constructing them. So they feel sometimes, um, unpredictable, but, in young children, there's a question of whether their brains are equipped to construct emotions or whether we're teaching, they're, we're instructing their brains, giving their brains learning cues for how to do that. So when you see your infant cry, you hear an infant cry, and you see that infant crying in a context, in a spatial context, in a temporal context, your brain is automatically using all that information to make an inference about what the cry means. But an infant's cry doesn't tell you anything about whether it's hungry or whether that baby is hungry or tired or cold or just needs a cuddle. And, you know, um, that's something that we infer from the context. And um, there's no evidence that emotions are innate. Um, There's much more evidence that emotions are learned and they're learned the way that infants learn to do almost everything, which is from, um, the environment from them exploring and interacting with the environment. Mm. 
Interesting. I remember when my first child was a young infant, there was something, I don't know if it was on Dr. Phil or Oprah or somewhere where someone had decided they had unpacked the language of infancy and like Nana meant I want a bottle. And they had kind of like labeled all of these, really, they labeled the emotions and the cries. Well, it may have meant that it it may have meant that for that child, like my daughter made up certain sets of sounds um, she had learned that certain sets of sounds that we responded to. And so she uses, she used those sounds as words. So for example, when she was very small, um, she would say, did la to mean what's that? And um, uh, muk to mean milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so she was using sets of words, sets of sounds as words, as references Um, And infants learn to do this really, really at a very, very young age. It's actually really miraculous. So um, if you explicitly um, label, you know, we always explicitly label things for our children, right? Like that's a truck, that's a dog, right? That's sadness. Oh, honey, don't be sad. Oh, honey, you're happy. Oh, you know, don't be angry. We're just using words that we know in everyday speech in a way that is predictable. And at about three months of age, children start to learn, they don't know words, but they they can tell when a set of sounds is predictably related to some other set of cues. So I'll, I'll give you an example. For example, if I show a baby, a three month old, a pen, and I say, sweetie, this is a blick. And then I drop the pen and it maybe makes a squeaking noise. And then I pick up some other object, which looks different and, and, you know, it it feels different. And I say, like, maybe my phone. And I say, look, sweetie, this is a blick. And I drop the blick and it makes a squeaky noise. Then I can pick up a third item that doesn't look like either of the first two. And I say, look, sweetie, this is a blick. And the baby is now expecting that when I drop that item, it's going to make a squeaky noise. Like a three-month-old can do something like that. So what's what the child is doing is it's learning patterns of signals and words are just a collection of signals that of sounds. And that's the beginning of um, language development. And is there value in labeling all of these different emotions Absolutely. for our children? What I just told you is um, what I, the example that I just gave you is a word being an imitation to construct an abstract concept. Where the exemplars, the pen, the phone, whatever set of keys, you know, they look different. They, if you touch them, they feel different, um, but they all have the same function. They, the function, which is to squeak in this example, supersedes the similarity and function supersedes their differences in other, uh, in the visual and, and um, haptic touch domains. That's basically what an abstract concept is. So children as young as three months old can use sounds particularly, and by four month olds, by four months old, this is a um, work by Sandy Waxman at, at Northwestern University. By four months old, they can, they are particularly attuned to the to the um, words that humans speak, the sounds that human other humans make to they're like invitations to learn abstract concepts. So yeah, using words, labeling things is um, one of the ways that babies learn, start to learn which things in the environment are important and predictable and reliable and which things they can ignore as noise. Mm -hmm. But what about specifically labeling emotions? 
Well, when you label an infant's emotions, keep in mind that in order for a brain to make emotions, it has to have emotion knowledge and babies are not born with emotion knowledge. And I need to make a distinction here between simple feelings of feeling pleasant and unpleasant, feeling pleasure, feeling pain, feeling worked up, feeling you know fussy or feeling calm. Those are simple feelings that, not, that babies are born feeling. They have the capacity to feel that. And in fact, as far as we know, most vertebrates actually can feel those feelings um, and maybe even some invertebrates. So those feelings are, come from the brain's regulation of the body. You know, your brain's main job is regulating the systems of your body and your body's always sending sense data back to your brain. And you experience that as these simple feelings, what you might call mood. Um, a scientist like me might call them affect. Those are properties of consciousness. They're with you all the time. Infants feel those things. They feel pleasure and pain. But an emotion is an instance where the brain is linking um, those sensory changes in the body with sensory changes in the world in order to plan action. And in order to do that, the baby has to have emotion knowledge. And babies are not born with emotion knowledge. They learn it. Just, you know, babies are born with, you know, not miniature adult brains. They're born with brains that have to finish wiring themselves and they wire themselves to the world that they inhabit. So they wire themselves specifically to the infant's body and um, to the infant's world, including the world that is populated by other people. So when you use emotion words with your infant, you are teaching that infant, you're inviting that infant to learn those emotion concepts and use those concepts in the future to create their own, to create other, you know, other instances of emotion later on. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, that well, a lot of things have struck me in your work, but one thing especially was this idea that we can't really reliably read other people's emotions. Well, you're not reading other people's okay. emotions. You're, you're, it's not that you do it unreliably. You're not reading. I mean, emotions are not, you know, facial movements, vocal sounds, body postures don't have, they're not like, they don't have inherent emotional meaning and they're not like words that can be read on a page. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, when you um, look at someone's face or you listen to their voice, you're, what you're doing is you're actually taking in an entire ensemble of signals and your brain is making an inference about the emotional meaning of those signals. So it's a, actually a serious problem that infants have to deal with. Actually, all of us do, but it's harder for infants because think about, for example, all the things that you might do or how you might sound when you're happy. When you're happy, you might smile you might laugh, but you might also groan. You might cry. Um, you might, um, you know, slam your fist on the table in enthusiasm. There are a lot of things that you can do when you're happy and your vocalizations might change. And somehow a baby has to learn that all of those, all of those different instances, which sound different and look different, that they all have the same meaning. It's just like that example with you know, this is a blick, right? That yeah. all these different objects have the same function. They make a squeak when you drop them. The way the baby learns that is with, because the word is paired 
with each instance. And so it's exactly the same. How does a baby learn ha what happiness is when what they're observing is so variable or when other people are labeling their uh, movements or their sounds, uh, the baby's movements or the baby sounds as happiness, even though those sounds are highly variable and the movements are highly variable. How does the baby learn? Well, the baby learns with the word. And the more words that the baby learns, the more, the broader the vocabulary um, that the baby has, the better equipped the baby is um, to make emotions that are highly tailored to the situation in, in the future. Yeah. So right now we are in the process of hiring a new au pair and hiring an au pair is kind of like online dating. You have a profile and pictures <laughs> and you're reading about this person and then you make a connection and you do a video chat. And I've been thinking about your work as I'm interviewing because I find, you know, I'm interviewing all these strangers who, you know, I've never seen their facial expressions before. And I find that I'm desperately trying to make predictions about them, right? Do they like me? You know, are they interested in coming to our family? Um, what is it going to be like to live with this? person? Are they reserved? Are they outgoing? You know, I'm really grasping for straws, trying to watch their facial movements and, and hear their intonation. But it, it, I have no idea, right? So, I, so I'm using my own experiences to yep. make those predictions. It's not, not about them. It's about me. Absolutely. I mean, your, your inferences about other people's emotions are as much about them as they are about you, or they're as much about your past experience as they are about uh, what that person is doing. So the first thing I'll say is you just spoke a set of words that you made an inference that I would say most people that I talk to make, and that is that facial movements are facial expressions. Hmm. I mean, sometimes, I mean, your face is moving all the time. Like right now, you and I are looking at each other and you just curled one side of your lip, just curled and the other one didn't. Was that an expression or was that yeah. just a movement, right? So humans move their faces all the time. Only sometimes are those movements expressions. So, mm. you know, we assume that every movement is an expression so much so that we think those are synonyms, but right. actually, yeah, that actually movements are movements and sometimes they're expressions. So the first task that we have is to try to figure out, make an inference about like, does that, is that movement meaningful? Right. So I might grimace or or scowl when I'm angry, but I might scowl when someone tells a bad joke and I might scowl if I have gas. So are all you know, a scowl is not always. In fact, it's rarely an expression of anger. It turns out, <laughs> um, you know, it's only about 30, 30, only about 35 percent of the time do people in in the West scowl when they're angry. And it's even less in other cultures. So I guess my my point is. That, that's my first point, that there are already inferences that we're making about what movements are meaningful. But I have many students from around the world. And um, and my lab has been to Namibia and Tanzania. We've studied hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. We've studied the Himba in Namibia. We've studied people all around the world. And when you are interacting with people whose past experiences are very different from yours, and whose life experiences that the world that they live in is just really different from yours. You there is a certain degree of mind blindness that you have, meaning it, it's because you don't share the same experiences. It's hard to make guesses. It's hard to make inferences mm -hmm. because 
your knowledge doesn't necessarily translate into good predictions about what their movements mean. And I think it's important to remember that and to be humble um, about, you know, no matter how confident you are in your ability to so-called read people, you're really, your brain is really just guessing. And that's even true, like you and I probably have much more in common um, than, you know, when I'm talking to somebody from Japan, say, um, a, uh, you know, one of my male graduate students or postdocs from Japan. But it's easy, the familiarity that that I might have with you because, you know, we were born on the same continent and we speak the same language and we're both mm -hmm. women and so on. It's easy to think that, it's easy to feel confident about um, my ability to to guess, but I'm still guessing, right? And I think, so I think that it's important to always remember that even when you're interacting with people who are even more similar to you, actually. We're gonna pause for a 60 second word from today's sponsor. Here's something that you might've thought about. I know I have. Why does laundry detergent come in those massive plastic jugs? Nobody wants that. It's heavy and it's messy. That's why I was thrilled to try out EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze functions very much like a dryer sheet. That's what it looked like to me. You simply pull it out and drop it into any wash cycle, hot or cold. It couldn't be easier. No measuring, no mess, just toss them in. And it's also safe for sensitive skin. I have loved how simple it is, how well it works. And even when I'm traveling, I can drop a few sheets into my suitcase and it adds literally no weight to my bag. But you won't really know until you try it. If you don't like it, EarthBreeze will give you a full refund and you don't even have to send it back. Now's the time to try EarthBreeze because right now my listeners can subscribe and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com simple to get started. That's earthbreeze.com simple for 40% off. earthbreeze.com simple. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. Back to our chat. I have a lot of listeners who are overwhelmed parents. Maybe most of my listeners are overwhelmed parents. I think in in this year Does that ever that, stop. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to not be an overwhelmed parent. Those words yeah. have kind of been um, yeah. connected for some time, and I, I think the idea of a body budget really will resonate with a lot of people. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, sure. So. You know, your brain's most important job from an evolutionary standpoint, why, why, why do we have brains? It's easy to think that we have brains because they're rational, they allow us to be rational or because they help us to see and feel things or whatever, but actually brains evolve to regulate bodies. So right now, as you and I are talking, we both have a lot of drama going on inside our own bodies. In fact, as our listeners are listening to us talk, there's a lot of drama going on inside each and every one of them. And I would have, hazard the guess that most people are unaware of that drama. At least I hope, I hope they're unaware because if they're actually can feel what's going on inside their bodies, something is seriously, probably amiss, um, something seriously wrong. So most of the time we don't feel every, you know, gush of chemicals and every, you know, squirt of cortisol and every, you know, we don't, we don't feel every single sensory change in our bodies. Instead, as I mentioned, we experience those as um, mood or, or these simple feelings. But your brain's most important job is regulating your body and it's doing that 
um, you know, every moment of your life. And the way to think about that regulation or a good metaphor, the, the technical term is allostasis, um, which means um, that your brain is predictively regulating your body um, in an attempt to be metabolically efficient. But the analogy is a body budget. So you can think about your brain, it's a metaphor really. And um, so it's, it's simplifying a lot of um, complicated details. But the idea is that your brain is running a budget for your body. And it's not budgeting money, it's budgeting glucose and salt and oxygen and water and so on. And so you can think about um, making deposits into that body budget, like eating and sleeping. You can think about making withdrawals from that body budget. So when you drag yourself out of bed in the morning, when you um, exercise, um, when you learn something new, those are all expenditures, um, withdrawals from your body budget. You can think about um, making a little savings, like having a little savings. So it turns out that when you're around someone that you love or someone that you trust, certain things are less metabolically expensive than if you were doing them by yourself. And that's because we don't just make deposits and withdrawals into our own body budgets. We also metaphorically make deposits and withdrawals um, from other people's body budgets. That is, we are the caretakers of other people's nervous systems. And um, so um, other people can provide a savings for your body budget and they can also be a tax. And for babies, little babies, right? Their brains aren't fully formed yet. So um, they can't do body budgeting on their own. They can't survive on their own. In fact, much of what we're doing is managing their body budgets for them and their attachment to us is very much rooted in our management of their body budgets. And over time, they learn, their brains become wired to manage their own body budgets in much the same way that we manage their body budgets for them. So I want to rewind for a second. The idea that exercise and learning something new are expenditures from our budget when I guess I'm thinking that those things enrich our lives. So help us understand what adds to and what takes away from the body budget. Well, anything which requires glucose takes away from the budget. So you have to replenish what you spend. So I would think about exercise and um, um and learning something new as an investment. You're spending something now to get a return on that expenditure later. Okay. Um, but you have to replenish what you spend. If you don't replenish what you spend, you start to run a deficit. And that has, you know, in the in the moment, a little deficit is, you'll feel it as unpleasantness, but it's not going to be a problem. But over the long run, you know, if if you if you have little withdrawals that are not replenished, um, then your deficit grows. And when it grows to a certain point, your immune system will get involved and then things get really expensive and you become sick. So from an evolutionary standpoint, do we as parents let lose sleep and take care of infants for sort of the exchange that they will refill our body budget through that relationship with them? Well, that's a story. Okay. 
I don't know that we know. I don't know that we know the answer to that question, actually. So I'm suspicious of just so stories like that. Okay. Um, I mean, it's important to understand that brains are like masters of deception, right? We're we're really just a bunch of brains trying to figure out how brains work, <laughs> <laughs> and our own experiences of the world, the brain, the experiences that our brains construct are not a really good guide to actually how brains work. This is something neuroscientists, you know, we should we should be humble about um, because it's like, so I would say the following. I exercise every day. I don't like it very much, but I do it because it keeps me healthy and it makes me, um, it will keep me healthy in the future. So it's an investment that I'm making for a return that I get pretty immediately actually, but also in the long term. You could use that same argument with with parents and kids. I would say that um, managing somebody else's body budget definitely makes withdrawals on your own. But you also get benefit. You, you, There are deposits immediately that you get from having a little baby around. You know, we, we, and we, and we know this because we say, we say things like, that. oh, it's a really good thing. They're so cute because otherwise, you know, how would yeah. we ever get, well, and there's something wonderful about, um, I don't know if you had this experience yet, but you know, my daughter used to, when she was young, she would run everywhere. She would not walk. She would run everywhere. And always to me, like I would pick her up from school and every day she would run like just flat out run. And, you know, for, and, you know, I would gather her up in my arms and it didn't matter what kind of a day I was having, honestly, because for that 10 minutes, those were like sometimes the best 10 minutes of my whole day. And that was a major deposit in my body budget every day. I didn't have to, I don't have to wait to be old and decrepit for her to, you know, return the investment. Um, there are costs and rewards investments and or, um, deposits and withdrawals on a daily basis. Um, now what that has to do with the drive to have children and continue to take care of them. I think that's, you know, we could certainly make a story, but I don't, I don't really know the answer, honestly. Yeah. So some people have a harder time seeing their future self and imagining and making those deposits for the future. Do people, especially neurodivergent people have a harder time seeing themselves. I think everybody, I think a lot, I don't think you have to be neurodivergent to yeah. um, have a hard time. I think every climate change is like the perfect example of everybody having right. a really That's hard true. time. Yeah. 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 So when seeing if you if you can see yourself in the future, do you usually have a a more managed body budget? Is that a key part of managing your body budget, do you think? So that's a that's an interesting question. Um I would say when we talk about the brain predicting, what we what we usually mean by that is if we were to hold the time still right now, your brain is not just representing the patterns of sensory information in the world and in, in the body right now. It's also predicting what's going to come next. It's actually already starting to prepare what you're going to do next, what you're going to see next, what you're going to hear next, and so on. So we're really talking about milliseconds from now, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we had more time, you know, I could give you lots of examples of how this works. The whole Every sport that you know that involves a ball <laughs> um, is based on this predictive um, 
these predictive transactions between the brain and the body. Um, but the question of whether, you know, and the brain is predicting on multiple time scales. So not just a moment from now, but, you know, a few minutes from now, or maybe, you know, an hour or two from now. And then what you're asking me is about days or weeks or months or years from now. Um, and I don't think, I don't think we know the answer to that. I think we know, I can say that a brain that predicts well in the present moment for the next moment or for the next few moments definitely is um, a, a brain that manages its body budget more efficiently for sure. Okay. I, I also heard you say that depression is a depleted body budget. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, depression um, is uh, at its basis a, a metabolic problem. Either the brain believes there's a metabolic problem in the body or there actually is a metabolic problem in the body. But basically, when your body budget starts to run a deficit, you feel fatigued and you feel distressed. Um, and when you're running a deficit in your actual budget, like your bank account, what do you stop? What do you do? You, you stop spending usually, or you slow your spending. So what does it mean for a brain to slow its spending? It means you move less. It means you learn less. You're less likely to take in new information from the world that you didn't predict, which is what learning is. Um, you sort of stick with what you know. You, and depression is a bankrupt body budget. It's a, it's um, the symptoms are very much associated with, you know, compromised um, metabolic function, either the, like I said, either there really is a metabolic problem, um, maybe a mitochondrial problem, maybe you've been sick. There's this finding that um, people who have uh, metabolic illnesses like heart disease or diabetes have a very, very high rate of depression, like over 70%, which almost, you know, statistically means that, that almost they're the same disease. But doctors ask questions, well, what is it about um, diabetes that would lead someone to be depressed? Or what would it be, you know, why is it that heart disease causes depression? And the answer is it's not cause, it's not a causal relationship. They both, all these diseases stem from a common problem, which is a problem in metabolism. And anytime your immune system is very, very expensive, metabolically expensive. So anytime your immune system um, gets involved, um, you know, things become much more expensive. A lot of the symptoms we see in long COVID, for example, are probably the effect of metabolic um, consequences, longer term metabolic consequences of having of having that virus in your body and your body attempting to fight it off. But of course, that's not how people think about it. But fundamentally, many of the things we think of as separate diseases actually have a common metabolic uh, basis. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I am a therapist and I see a lot of kids in my office with challenges regulating their emotions. How do you think that connects to their body budgets? Well, let's take neurodivergent kids for a second as a really this because th this is a, a set of findings that I, I think is really, really instructive. So most children, neurotypical brains, as they they wire themselves to their environment. So part of what you're doing when you 
you're cultivating or curating a child's environment is you're wiring its brain. When, if you let your child watch TV, if you don't let your child watch TV, if you let your child eat goldfish, if you don't let your child eat goldfish, all of these things, they're all small things, but they all have an impact. But some brains predict better than others. Some brains learn faster than others. Um, and some brains aren't wired to predict particularly well. So if your brain that doesn't, predict well, you're constantly reacting to things. And reaction is much more expensive metabolically than prediction. To predict and correct is even less expensive than react, 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 very expensive. So neurodivergent brains are often more metabolically expensive brains. And that's going to just by virtue of the fact that there's greater expense there, it's going to make it harder for those little brains to regulate those little bodies. But in addition, with certain types of neurodivergent um, structures, there's also less social cueing to pull in body budgeting support from other people, like from parents and caregivers. So neurotypical brains will ask for juice or they'll ask for water or they'll, they'll, you know, they might nag you, they might whine, but they're asking for something that they need. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't always happen. Um, you know, they might get cranky or they might, right. But there are some, there's some set of signals and then you have to figure out what those signals mean. But, you know, with some kids, particularly on the spectrum, you can't tell from their movements. You can't, there's really, it looks placid on the surface. And then all of a sudden, you know, the smallest change will provoke like a major tantrum. And, you know, we're left being very puzzled by this. And we make up a story about, you know, overactive emotion circuits and underactive control circuits. But actually, if you were to slap a a heart monitor on those kids, their heart is racing at like 150, 160 beats a minute, even though they look completely placid. Mm. So before their reaction, you're saying that they're already elevated. You just- They're already elevated. It's just that teachers and parents can't tell because the cues that they're used to inferring, making inferences about aren't there. So not only do these kids have, their brains have difficulty predicting, and not only do they not socially cue for help in regulation. Speak up for what they need. They also don't have many of the same movements and vocalizations that, um, that neurotypical brains have that, you know, parents or caregivers might, might notice to intervene before the tantrum comes. And so in that case, what's happening in those tantrums is not that those kids are overly emotional and it's not that they're acting out. It's that their brain is attempting to reset their nervous system. Like they're trying to calm down and the way to calm down is to explode. And then everything gets, and then the nervous system Mm -hmm. is calm again. And if you think about it that way, which there's evidence from Matthew Goodman's work actually here at Northeastern. It's really remarkable that you can look at these kids and they just look so placid. And then you look at what's happening to their physiology and they are anything but placid inside. You have tremendous empathy for these kids, right? Um, Because their brains are using what they have and, you know, they can't avail themselves as easily from the body budgeting support that we take for granted, you know, when you put your daughter or when you put your child to sleep, when you feed your child, when you give your child a hug, do you think to yourself, oh, I'm, 
I'm engaging in body budgeting. But no, you right. don't. But that is actually what you're doing all the time. If your child is securely attached to you, that's because you provide consistent and reliable body budgeting support to that kid. Yeah. I have a kid that experiences auditory overwhelm. And I, it's knowing that has been such a powerful part of my parenting because, you know, I have a lot of empathy around that. And I know, I don't know, I have no idea what it's, what it's like to be in that brain, but I can only imagine the tax on his body budget every day, you know, showing up in this noisy world and how exhausting and taxing that must be. So just knowing that much, I think you know, when we can understand those pieces of our kids, how it can help us to figure out how to, how to help them fill their body budgets back up or give opportunities for that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, another thing, which I think is um, in line with that is again, with um, kids who are neurodivergent, you know, there was this stereotype really that kids on the spectrum, for example, um, didn't want social interaction, didn't care about other people. And maybe that's true in certain cases, but Actually, many of them experience, well, what's described as anxiety, as social anxiety. I might describe it a little differently in the following way. When your brain can't predict what's going to happen next in the body or in the world, it attempts to to try to learn what we call prediction error. That is the stuff that the brain didn't predict. It's attempting to learn. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, your brain will secrete certain chemicals and your body will secrete certain chemicals that will raise your heart rate, will make your palms sweaty, basically will increase your level of arousal, which goes with learning. And we experience that most often as anxiety. We create anxiety out of that when really what it is, it's arousal in the service of reducing uncertainty. So imagine you're a little brain who isn't body budgeting very well, can't predict very well, can't take advantage of other people's efforts to so give body budgeting support, you're probably walking around anxious all the time, actually. But of course, you don't, sh- there's no way that you express it in ways that other people could make inferences about. And, in, and to make matters worse, you look disinterested. But again, you know, it's not like we're, we're, inf- we're reading that disinterest, we're inferring it. And we're inferring mm-hmm. it from the signals that we always use, which are vocalizations. And right. So I think that it gives you, I think, a much more empathy and um, and also much more curiosity about what someone is experiencing, um, which may be really different from your inferences about. And the thing that's important for parents to understand is that when you start offering children words, you're inviting them to have that, to make that experience, right? So the reason part of the reason why we have so many kids who are anxious right now is because they live in worlds that are very unpredictable we we live in a society where food and shelter are not human rights there's a lot of unpredictability that kids have to deal with every day some of it is is normal the normal part of life right but there but there's more than that And so there's a lot of arousal and the go-to explanation is anxiety, but you can actually teach people and children that arousal sometimes is just uncertainty and it doesn't have to be anxiety. It can be curiosity. It can be determination. 
it can be many, many different things. And that may sound crazy to you, but I would invite you to try it. And I would tell you that there's really good evidence, for example, with kids who have test anxiety, that you can completely eradicate that test anxiety by teaching them to construct different experiences out of that arousal, to make sense of those arousing um, affective feelings in a very, very different way. So would that be something like changing self-talk, you know, right before a test, instead of saying, I'm so nervous, changing the self-talk to say, I'm so excited. I'm so thrilled to be taking this test. Yeah, I'm determined. And 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 actually, the research evidence shows kids, for example, for young adults who were in college, high school or college age, test anxiety can lead people to not go to college, to drop out of college. That actually changes their um, future earning trajectory by hundreds of thousands of dollars throughout their lifetime. And if you you train, they can you can train people to experience that arousal as determination. And when you do that, they experience determination. And it's, it's, you know, it's like driving. At first, it's really deliberate. It's really hard. But then it's like a skill. You practice, 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 and then it gets automated and it feels like second nature. And that's exactly the way it works with making sense of your affective feelings. What you're doing is you're teaching yourself a skill. You're teaching yourself how to cultivate different experiences out of those feelings. Um, And if you do it enough, uh, if you practice it enough, uh, it becomes pretty automatic. And then your behavior changes. Yeah. So is that because the physiological sensations are the same? Like between being nervous about a test and being excited about a test. Exactly. Your body's behaving in the same way, but your, your, your labeling in your brain is different. It's not that you're labeling it. It's that you're, you're creating other signal ensembles in your brain that give those physical signals, different meaning. Okay. That, that is what you're doing. And sometimes you don't want to create emotion out of it. So like, you know, for, since the day my daughter was born between like fourth, 30 and 6, 6, 6, 30. She was as a young baby, she was always fussy, fussy, fussy. And you can call it what you want, but it's actually always true. When she was a five-year-old, she was fussy at that time. When she was a nine-year-old, she was fussy at that time. Yeah. Now we use different metaphors at different times, right? Um, the witching it, hour. The witching hour. That's exactly yeah. what we call it, the witching hour. When she was a little girl, we used to talk about the crabby fairy coming to visit. <laughs> And, you know, the crabby fairy would come and then what would she, what was she going to do in, in those moments when the crabby fairy was coming and how was she going to keep the crabby fairy at bay or make the crabby fairy go away? When she was an adolescent, we used a different metaphor. But the point is that my daughter didn't grow up thinking of herself as a fussy, crabby person. Mm-hmm. She understood that there were just some physical things. Ha- First, there was like magical things happening, right? But then there were just some physical things happening. And now she knows She's, you know, in her twenties. Now she knows that this is the time of day when she's, her body budget's a little bit, she's running a bit of a deficit from the day and she needs to be a little gentle with herself. Right. And she should not make any serious decisions until she's had (laughs) dinner. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has been so great. I mean, I have a million other questions I could ask you, but I so appreciate your time. Let us know where we can find you online and your latest book. Sure. Um, so if you go to lisafeldmanbarrett.com, there are many, many um, podcasts and articles 
um, some um, videotaped lectures. They, they're all for free. Um, but you could also find um, two of my two books there. One is How Emotions Are Made, which is a, a standard popular science book, um, uh, which it covers much of this material. And then my newer book is called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's really a small little book of essays um, uh, that are really I wrote for people who are don't think of themselves as interested in science. Um, they These essays kind of give you, you, know, you can read one in like 20 minutes. It, they give you a little couple of tidbits of, of neuroscience that you can like wow your friends at, you know, when you over drinks or at a dinner <laughs> party. Um, but um, also um, these tidbits invite you to think um, about what it means to have a brain like the kind of brain that we have, like what does it mean yeah. for human nature and what does it mean for the kind of human that you would like to be? It's, it's not a book that tells you how to be, it more invites you um, to uh, to think about those questions um, from a neuroscientific point of view. Yeah, it's amazing the impact of learning a little bit about the brain, how powerful that can be for parents and for kids to even learn about their own brain. And they can really, even at a young age, can really understand some basic stuff. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you that I I originally wrote How Emotions Are Made uh, because my daughter, like many adolescents, when she was an adolescent, became clinically depressed. And part of how I came to the understanding um, of um, what the brain was doing, um, and actually I shifted my entire research program to uh, was to tr to try to figure out how to help her, and um, she came up with her own concepts, her own metaphors for understanding body budgeting um, that really helped her cope with. Um, what she was experiencing when she was an adolescent. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope to have you back soon. I would love that. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Lisa, otherwise known as Dr. Barrett. If you want to find links to the things that we talked about today, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 335. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm glad you're here.